Good morning, church, and welcome to our online service. We are finally in the last month of the year. So welcome to the festive season. Before we go into the rest of the service, I would like to share this verse with you. Numbers 23 verses 19. It reads, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? As I was reading through this, I was just reminded of how wonderful and faithful our Heavenly Father has been and is to us. He is the same God in and out of seasons. So as we approach the end of 2020, my prayer for you today is that God may bring you joy and peace, that He may restore and uplift you, that He may cover and protect you, that He may provide for your every need today and forevermore. We are going to receive the word of God from Pastor Mondly this morning. But before that, let us spend some time in praise and worship. Enjoy the service.
Greetings, People's Church. Before we go into a time of communion, just wanted, wanted us to look into the scripture which will remind us what this time of communion is all about. One of the things that Jesus and the religious leaders fought over was that they felt as if he's destroying or undermining what they knew and stood for. What they did not understand was that the Old Testament was a shadow of the New Testament. And not only that, the Old Testament was pointing towards Jesus. And here we see the scriptures, a scripture in John, in the Gospel of John, where Jesus was trying to connect those dots for them, and they simply were not getting it. And this is after he had performed a miracle where he fed 5,000 people. And in the Gospel of John, now they are looking for him and they are not finding him. And finally, they found him and they are starting to have this dialogue with him. In chapter 6, starting from verse 25, now they are asking him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. Verse 27, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures for everlasting life, to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Now they are wondering, what is this food that Jesus is talking about? And they just cannot seem to understand because they are now going to go into the Old Testament trying to make a connection of this food. And verse 31 says, Our fathers, they are now saying to him, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven. He, they are referring to Moses. Verse 32, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, Give us this bread always. Verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And Jesus is showing them now that what was given was not sufficient. What was given in the Old Testament still was not sufficient because they ate manna and they still died. So now, he is now talking about a different bread, which now they are supposed to make, they can't make this connection. I would like for us to think about the message of the gospel. That the message is not so much that Jesus came to make good people better. It is not so much that we just needed a little bit of help. We were dead people in our sins. 
and Jesus came to make us alive. Whether you grew up in church or this is the first time you're hearing about Jesus, it does not matter. The bottom line is we need a savior. We could not save ourselves. Even if we tried, all the good works were never going to be enough. So Jesus had to step in and save us. And that is the best news. And the problem with the religious leaders, they felt as if there was something they could do to end this. And they could not. And that, is what, that was the whole point of Jesus. Jesus' message. That was, that's why it was easy for, for people who felt as if they were far away from God to accept the gospel. Because for them, they had nothing to offer. And that was the whole point of Jesus' message. Your works were never going to be enough. Your works were never going to cut it. Therefore, you need somebody, someone who is perfect, someone who is blameless to step in the gap. And that is what he's saying. I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of this bread will never hunger. And that is why we need to be reminded every time we do communion that this is more than just tradition. We need to be reminded of the one who came in, who stepped into the gap. We need to be reminded of this bread of life. Be reminded that there's nothing that can separate you and I from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that you did to deserve it, to earn it, and there's nothing that you and I can do to lose it. This time of communion, is such a beautiful time for you and I where we come together again to be reminded of the free gift the free gift that is Christ Jesus whose blood was shed for us at the cross of Calvary God bless you Hello again, people's family. It is offering time. And offering time in our family means it's time to give. Give towards the work of God. Give towards um, helping our fellow believers because the money goes that far. And I just thought that as we enter into December, we need to enter into also a spirit of gratitude and of thanksgiving for how far the Lord has led us in the year 2020. I'm sure you will agree with me that this year has been one that nobody could have predicted. And you are awake, you are alive, and you are in December, meaning the Lord has kept you thus far. It has not been because we are smarter. It's not been because we have done anything better. It's not been because our immune systems are even stronger than other people's immune systems. It's just been pure grace and pure mercy. We have survived a lot of things. Besides the obvious COVID um, pandemic, we have survived homeschooling <laughs> for many of us. Our kids are on holiday now. And I remember looking through a lot of people's statuses and they were actually celebrating, you know, that their kids got um, awards and prizes this year. And, you know, mothers were giving themselves credit to say, I homeschooled my child. 
oh, my child did most of the work themselves for the older kids, and they made it through. And I thought we have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to be grateful for. And in the midst of all the other things that we could count to have gone wrong, we still have a lot of blessings that we can count to have gone very right. Some of us spent a lot of good time with family, you know, this year. Through the lockdown period, relationships were built. You know, yes, you may have lost your job, but the time that you spent with your children will never be replaced by any amount of money that anyone could offer you. It reminded me of the story of Job. Job went through a lot of suffering. You know, if you read the book of Job, there is a big um, account, a huge account of the trials he went through, of the loss that he encountered. And a lot of it was sudden. Somehow, like the COVID pandemic hit us so suddenly before we could plan any savings, before we could put money away, before we could make any advance, you know, towards getting us through the months. It hit us so suddenly, like Job's situation hit him so suddenly. But I want to fast forward to Job chapter 42, verse 12. And it says, I'm going to paraphrase it, that God blessed the second part of Job's life more than the first part. You know, and I don't know which part you feel like you are in right now, but I get a sense that as we walk into December, as we walk into the end of the year with the spirit of gratitude, we are guaranteed a blessing. Because when Job admitted that I don't know anything, Lord, you know it all. You know, I have been wrong about you all along. That is when God turned to the second half of Job's life. So I want to encourage you as you give, as you put your offering in, as you take from that bonus that you're not even sure whether you will be able to earn again from next year, let us trust God. Let us trust God like the children of Israel trusted him when they walked around the wall of Jericho. They acted on the word just to obey, just to sing praises, just to walk and walk and walk and walk and surely the walls fell down. So I encourage you, family, let us give to God's work. Let us give to our fellow believers and let us trust God to bless every single hand that gives. And remember, it doesn't matter how much. Your little always goes a long way. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be part of what you are doing. Thank you for the opportunity to bring back our offering, to say thank you. Thank you for leading us thus far. Thank you for bringing us through 2020. Thank you for keeping us in good health. Thank you for keeping our children through school this year. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord Jesus. And we pray that every hand that is lifted also in need this morning, that, Father, you will just reach out and you will just bless them. We thank you, Father, for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Please take note of the banking details and God will continue to reach you at your point of needs. Amen. Hello, church at home. It's great to be with you again. And before I get to my sermon, I just want to share a disturbing discovery that I made recently. Did you know that a person could be saved and have the Holy Spirit living in them and still have some wrong or incorrect beliefs and understanding within him, you know, wrong teachings? I don't know how that makes you feel. 
to be honest. But for me, it actually unnerved me a little bit. And I had to just drill into why does this actually unnerve me. And we're not going to get into that. Well, the weird thing, uh, first of all, about that whole thing is that on the other side of those initial feelings of discomfort is actually an, a sense of incredible freedom. That was a little bit weird, but so that's what I'm hoping for today as well, is that this, if this reality unnerves you, that you stick with it, because I can assure you on the other side of those initial feelings, of those initial uh, feelings of discomfort, there's actually freedom. If you read Acts chapter 18, we are introduced to a man by the name of Apollos. He's a Jewish man, and this is what is said about him in the scriptures, that he was eloquent, mighty in the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord, which means he was a believer. He was fervent in the spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. And yet he only knew of the baptism of John. So he had an incomplete understanding. He only knew of the baptism of John. And that is the baptism in water for the forgiveness of sins. And so he didn't know much further about the ways of Jesus Christ. And we are told that other believers had to take him and pull him aside to explain to him the ways of God more accurately. And so that was the part that a little bit unnerved me. But that is a reality. That is something that happens. And so you see, that tells me that we are all on a journey. We are all works in progress. That not even a single one has arrived at the destination. That no one is perfect. And yes, you heard me rightly. No one is perfect. That no one is incapable of saying or doing something wrong. And there's so many takeaways that we can take from this uh, particular uh, story in the Bible, the story of Apollos. And the first one that I was able to take away is that you and I actually don't need to know the entire Bible cover to cover before we can begin to become uh, witnesses for Jesus Christ. The second one is that God can use anybody, even people that have a theology that is not really up to scratch. He can still use those people. Third takeaway is that the little that you know, if you place it in God's hand, it can actually go a really long way. And this is what I believe is very important for us to understand, that while salvation is a once-off event, that the work of sanctification is actually a lifelong process. And this is how things like this can happen. This is because salvation is a once-off event, but sanctification is a lifelong event that the Holy Spirit does, uh, is a lifelong process that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And so let me try and be a little bit um, clear before we go any further, because I assume some of us may be asking ourselves questions such as, well, then what is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? If you are saying that becoming a Christian does not mean becoming perfect and living a sinless life, if that is not what it means, then what is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? I'll start with what a Christian is not. A Christian is, is not someone who never sins again in this life. That is not what a Christian is. You will never find that in the scriptures. And if you consider yourself a Christian and are very uncomfortable with the notion or the thought of a Christian occasionally giving into and committing sin, 
I would be willing to bet this about you. If you were to be honest with yourself, you would realize that you are a person who leads a double life. You know those people that have a holier-than-thou exterior with a, sinful, with a sin-infested interior? You know those kind of people? You would be that kind of person if you are uncomfortable with this notion. You would, you would be forced to live that kind of life. Your instinctual response to a person struggling with sin in their life is to ask them, what's wrong with you? Are you still struggling with this same thing? Why is this difficult for you to get over and you end up having to look down on people who do not have the same pristine external facade that you have you have to look down upon those people and you end up grading people based on how holy they appear not on the work that God has done in their lives and I want you to ask yourself this question how is that any different than the Pharisees that we read about in Jesus' day because they were people that were living exactly that way. And so a Christian, at least to me, you know, a Christian is a person who has been forgiven all their sins and that is because they have placed their faith on the finished work on uh, uh, finished work of the cross on their behalf. What Jesus did on the cross, they have placed their faith on that finished work. And so a Christian, because of the work of regeneration that the Holy Spirit does in us, is a person who now has two natures within them. The fallen nature that they used to have, and now they have a new spiritual nature that the Holy Spirit brings into their lives. And that creates a, a situation where there is constant internal struggle between the two natures. And the Bible uh, teaches that, that the, 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 the fallen, you know, human fleshly nature wants things that are contrary to the things of the spirit. And the spirit also wants things that are contrary to the, to the flesh. And so there is this constant internal struggle. And unfortunately, it does actually result in the believer sometimes occasionally giving in to the desires of the flesh, even though we are supposed to, you know, obey and, and live according to the desires of the spirit. Occasionally, it does happen that we give in because of the internal raging struggle. And so, even though a Christian still uh, gets tempted uh, to, to, to sin, and actually sometimes, occasionally, actually gives in to the temptation and actually commits sin, there is a fundamental difference between a believer and an unbeliever. And the fundamental difference is this, that because of the new nature that is now within the, the believer, they can no longer enjoy sin the same way they used to before. They, can, they now can no longer live in sin the same way that they used to live in it before because they have a new and spiritual nature within them. You know, sin has become distasteful to them and we are broken in our hearts by just even the thought that our actions grieve the heart of God, that the things that we do, they grieve the Holy Spirit and that breaks us and causes us to, to repent of our sins and to confess our sins and to ask for the Holy Spirit to help us um, to be able to overcome this sin in our lives. That is the fundamental difference. And if you right now, hearing me say all of these things, you actually cannot identify with any of the things that I'm saying. You know, there's nothing that convicts you from the inside after committing sin. There has not been any deep foundational tra transformation and change in your life after placing your life and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. If there has not been any drastic change in your lifestyle, 
you know, in the way that you actually live, and you find that you are actually living the same way that you used to before, then I would actually encourage you to seriously consider whether you really got saved or you merely recited a prayer. You merely recited words that, that did not really resonate with your heart because I believe there needs to be a drastic change inside of you that will actually make its way on the outside based uh, through your lifestyle and the way that you make your decisions and the way that you actually live when you meet the Lord Jesus Christ, when you have an encounter and when you get saved. And if you don't hear much of what I'm about to say today, I want you to understand the statement that correct beliefs, they lead to correct living. It is not the other way around. It is the correct beliefs that actually lead to correct living. And this is why we need to, to fix our correct beliefs if we want to, to fix the, our lives, you know, the, the lives that we are actually living. And this is actually, by the way, why we're always stressing discipleship. Why we're saying discipleship is so important is because it instills in us correct beliefs that will translate to correct living. We don't want to be people that are obsessed about the external, about the, 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 the lives of people. We want to be concerned about what is happening on the inside because what is happening on the inside will work itself out to the external, to how we actually live our life. And this is also why truth is so important. You know, not only true statements, but truth that is applied in our lives. It has power to change our lives. But this also underlines for me why it is so dangerous. You know, all the perversions and all the distortions of the truth, they are so dangerous because they also work out in how we live. And the purpose of the sermon that I'm about to preach today, and yes, I haven't started, but the purpose of the sermon I'm about to preach today is to put out what is true so that some of our incorrect or incomplete beliefs or understandings may be corrected or, or and completed so that our joy in the Lord may abound all the more. That is what I'm trying to do, to put out truth and so that we can apply it in our lives and that what is false and what is incomplete may be completed so that our joy in the Lord may abound all the more. And that is the reason I'm about to say everything that I'm about to say right now is so that we can have better understanding, but not for the sake of better understanding alone, but for the sake that that better understanding will actually help us to live better lives as Christians. And that is what I am going to try and do. In fact, if you go to John chapter 8, verse 32, this is what it says. Jesus says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth has the power to liberate us. The truth has the power to set us free and to give us freedom in our lives. And this, I believe, is the will of God for each and every one of us who are believers. And that is, is the premise, that is the foundation of my sermon. And I admit that that was a very long introduction. But uh, what I'm about to do now, you know, in the next couple of minutes that I have, I'm going to talk about two things, two things that are very common, two things that you know uh, maybe very well, actually, by now. And the reason I'm going to talk about them is because I believe they are so common in the church, in the scriptures, in day-to-day -day living. They are so common that it has actually become easy for us to get them mixed up, to get them, um, to, to, to forget our, uh, what they mean, you know. And so what I'm going to do is to basically answer two questions. First question is, um, what, are these, uh, what are these concepts and what do they actually mean? And the second one is, how will our lives change once we understand 
what these concepts are and what they actually mean. And so the concepts that I'm going to talk about, the concepts that you already knew about, is the concept of God's grace and God's mercy. We know, you know, I believe all of us know that God is full of mercy, God is full of grace. But I want to ask you a question. Do you actually know, if you were to define, what those concepts actually mean? And my guess is, you know, we think we know, but we realize we're actually not sure. Sometimes we think they are the same thing. Well, are they the same thing? And that's what we're about to do just now. And so I'm going to talk about first God's mercy and then talk about the grace of God and conclude. First one, God's mercy. And so for the first one, I'm going to base my, my talk on the parable, of, um, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And that is found in Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. And this is what it says. It says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was unable to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife, his children, and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. The master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and, gave, and forgave him the debt. And there's a number of interesting things uh, that are happening here. But the first one to note is that we're actually not told uh, whether this was 10,000 talents of gold or 10,000 talents of silver because there was a vast um, difference between those two. They, these are sums of money, but we don't know, you know, uh, based on whether there were 10,000 talents of gold or of silver. But regardless, if you were to translate it into today's money, into today's value of money, at the very beginning, you know, at the very minimum, it would translate to about 288 million rands. And that is a lot of money. You know, I don't know how I would be able to pay that, but that is only the minimum. At the upper end of the scale, the maximum that that debt could have been is more than 4,350,000,000 rands. And suffice it to say, that is a lot of money. And this is what I believe, that the, the, tal the, the, the actual value is not the thing that is most important, but what it symbolizes, what it communicates to us. And this is what it communicates, that this debt was so big that it would have taken this man multiple lifetimes to actually be able to pay it back. That is, that is the important thing for us to understand and to grasp is that it would have taken him multiple lifetimes for him to be able to pay back. This was a debt he simply could not pay. And that is why he begs and the master was compassionate upon him. This is the significance for you and I today because um, there is also a sin. There is also a debt that we are owing God based on the sins that we have committed. That is the, 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 the important thing for us to understand, that the, the debt that we owe God, if we were to be able to try, if we were to try to pay it back, it would take us multiple lifetimes to actually be able to pay it back. And sometimes this concept is difficult for us to understand, especially people that have grown up in the church. And I found that um, most of the time it is people of the world, people that are outward sinners, that are able to understand this concept much easier and much quicker than the people of the church. You know, and sometimes in the church you find that this has to get spelled up, uh, spelled up for us, you know, spelled out uh, for us, for us to be able to understand it because we have spent so much time in the church that we, that we begin to believe that we are good 
good, you know, that there's no debt that we owe God, that there's no sin that we have done. We are good people. I've been a Christian all my life. You know, I was brought up in the church, attended Sunday school in this church. People talk like that and they actually forget that there is a debt. There is a sin that we have committed. There's a debt that we are owing God that will take us multiple lifetimes for us to be able to pay it back. And I want you to think with me for a moment that some of the, mo of the, of the worst people, churchgoers that you would meet in the church, my experience has been that those are actually people that we don't think that they are. You know, those are the people that actually grew up in the church. And because they, grow up, they grew up in the church, they believe they are automatic Christians. Those are actually, in my experience, some of the worst people you can meet in churches, churchgoers, because they are the most judgmental. They are the gossip mongers. You know, they are the people that are always critical. They are the people who are prideful and who look down on other people. Those are actually the people that, in my experience, are actually some of the worst that we can meet in the church. And to make things worse, this is what we need to understand, that according to the Bible, sin is primarily not the wrong things that we do, but sin is primarily a, a, a nature that we inherit, a state of being that we inherit at birth. That is what sin is. So what this means is that you can meet a person who grew up in the church, who ticks all the boxes. They've never said a bad word all their lives. They've never killed anyone or so much as drive over the speed limit. But we need to understand that when it comes to how God views people, he can see that person just as much a sinner as a person who committed murder. Why? Because sin is primarily not the wrong things that we do, but sin is primarily the nature that we inherit at birth. And so sometimes that's why I'm saying that it is in this aspect that people that are drug dealers, that are prostitutes, that are murderers, they, are actually, they can actually be at, a, at an advantage over people that grew up in the church because they know instinctively, I'm a bad person, I need help, I need forgiveness. Us who grew up in the church, we sometimes think we don't need forgiveness, we are actually fine. If you, and then if you go further in the parable, in verse 25, this is what you find, that but as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and that payment be made. And the thing to note about this is that the master was actually able to do this. You know, back in those days, there were very harsh uh, consequences for people who were unable to pay their own debts. And this was within the... the the law, you know, the, the master was, was able to do this even legally. To sell him, to sell his wife, to sell his children, to sell all his property until the debt has been paid. In fact, it's, it's even uh, underlined by, if you continue reading in this parable, you will see this same man. He goes out, he meets a man who owes him a sum of money. And he takes him, when this man says he can't pay him, he takes him, he throws him in prison until every cent is paid. This was something that was common. This was something that they were able to do back in those days. And also, this is very significant for us to understand what does it communicate to us you know these days we meet people that have questions such as this i'm not sure if you have ever come across this question people ask um, that how can a god who is loving actually send people to hell for all eternity have you ever come across that question because i have and there's a fundamental mistake that we make when you ask that question because the answer to that question is that absolutely he can a God who is loving 
can send people to hell. And according to the Bible, he actually will send people to the Bible for all eternity. What is the fundamental mistake that we make? We understand that God is loving, but we forget that God is also a just judge. That God is a judge who is just. What does this mean? It means that all the justice requirements of God simply need to be met. Because God is just. He cannot be unjust. He cannot just change and not be just all of a sudden. So God is just and has to remain just even though he is also loving. This is how he is able to send people to hell for all eternity. And, and the whole thing to understand about this is that if you and I are not able to accept the, the gift that God has given out of love, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, and God in Jesus, in fact, Jesus Christ, when he was hang, hanging upon the cross, he actually met all the just requirements of God's justice. And so if we are not able to accept the gift that God has given, then we will have to bear our own consequences for our own sins. And that is how God will be able to send people to hell for all eternity. It's because we have rejected the gift that he has given because he is loving. Therefore, what is left is God's justice. And that is what we were going to have to face all of our lives. And so the, the, this parable actually ends in a completely unthinkable turn of events. The Bible says that as this, as this man who owed a great deal of money, as he was unable to pay, he begged for his life. He says he's unable to pay. The master, please be patient upon him. The unthinkable thing that happened is that the master actually was compassionate and he forgave this man all the debt that he had, all that sum of money that we spoke about, he actually forgave him. Absolutely unthinkable. And I want you to imagine with me for a moment. Imagine that you are a person who you, you are in court. You know, you are in court because of something that you did. You committed a crime that was unthinkable, unforgivable. And you are in court. And today is the day when the sentence is going to be handed down. And the judge sits upon the, his seat, upon his throne, and he pronounces a guilty verdict upon you. You are guilty. You, you did the crime. And therefore, you must, you must pay the price, you know, because you did the crime. And so he pronounces that you are guilty. But over and above that, he says, because of the crime that you performed, the crime that you did, you're going to have to spend all your life in prison, life imprisonment for the crime that you committed. Imagine that after this judge says this, the next thing he says is that nevertheless, my son is going to take your place and, and actually spend all of his life in prison because of something that you are guilty for. And you are going to go scot-free. Your, your, your crime is forgiven. There's nothing that you need to do. You are free from this moment because the judge's son is the one that is going to pay the penalty for the crime that you committed. Imagine with me for a moment. That is how unthinkable what this king did when he forgave this, this servant this debt. And this is exactly what the Lord, what God did for you and I through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Upon the cross, the Lord Jesus was hanging there, not for his sins, but for my sins, because we were given the, the guilty verdict. We're guilty for the crime. We are the ones who committed the crime, and the penalty needed to be paid. But God said it is his son that is going to pay the penalty for your own sins. That is what he did upon the cross. And that is the gift that he has given out of his love. And the mercy of God, that is actually what it means. Mercy 
is that which was rightfully ours, but God withheld from us because of the cross. That is God's mercy. But mercy on its own, you know, as, as unbelievable as it is, it is not the whole story. And you might be asking yourself, you know, can things possibly get any better than this? I can assure you, oh yes, they can. Because this is not the end of the story. Mercy means that that which God withholds from us. But that's not the only thing that happened. God also gives us something else on top of that forgiveness and that mercy that he has given us. And that is, where, that is when we step over to the domain of the grace of God. And in fact, if you were to think about mercy without grace, if you were to just think about mercy on its own, it would almost be like the children of Israel being delivered from Egypt and God just abandoning them and leaving them in the desert for them to figure it out on their own. Okay, they can take it over from here. That is what mercy without grace is actually like. And that is not what happened. Because in fact, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 23, this is what it says. It says, and he, God, brought us out from there, Egypt, that he might bring us in. I like that. He did not bring us out to leave us out. He brought us out so that he could bring us in and give us the land that he saw to give to our fathers. He did not only forgive our sins and wants nothing to do with us. There's something on top of, great, of, on top of mercy that he gives us, and that is the grace. And now we turn over to the grace of God. And we need to understand that while mercy is that which rightfully, we rightfully deserved, but God withheld from us, grace is that which we did not deserve, but God has, has freely given to us in Christ Jesus. That is what grace is. You know, Grace is that which we never deserved, but God has given to us. It is that which was completely not necessary for God to do. But you know what? God chose to do it. And if you go to Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll just leave you with the first 10 verses. And, and I want you to, to really absorb them, take them in, really understand the, the meaning behind the words, the heart behind the words, what these words symbolize and what they mean. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. This is what it says. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the cause of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And I want you to hear this statement very clearly. And God raised us up with him, Jesus Christ, and seated, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. This is after he forgave us all the unthinkable things that we have done. Forgave us all of that debt. After that, after the mercy, then the grace. And I'll repeat that again. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That is an amazing statement. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may be able to boast before God. And this statement that I, that, I, that I emphasized, for me it says that we are the proof of the grace of God, which worked itself in him being kind towards us in Christ Jesus, that we are the proof. What that means is that in the ages to come, when God wants to demonstrate his, his grace to the angels and all the heavenly bodies and everyone else, if he wants to demonstrate his grace, the only thing he will need to do is to point at us. And just say, look at them. That is the proof of my grace. That is the proof of my kindness. That is the proof of the grace of God. We are the proof of the grace of God. I'm not sure if you understand the sheer magnitude of that statement. That is an amazing statement. You and I are the proof of the grace of God. And so, um, so what that also means is that God did not only forgive our sins, but he went on to save us. He went on to make us a people belonging to him. He went on to adopt us to his family. He went on to make us a people that belong to him. Something that he did not need to do, but out of his kindness, out of his grace, he chose to do. He chose to make us his. He chose to bring us into his family, to make us people that belong to him, that is the grace of God. And then the last thing that we need to understand is that truth is supposed to translate to life change. Truth is not enough by just be it being statements. Truth needs to translate to life change. And so the question that remains is how should this truth change how we actually live? How should this truth be applied in our lives and transform how we live our lives. And that is where we get to the conclusion or the application of this teaching. And this, this is where we land this plane. And so if you are not a Christian today, you would not consider yourself a Christian, but maybe because of this teaching, you are thinking that th perhaps it is time for you to become a Christian. And I want you to understand clearly, you know, that Christianity in the, in the nutshell, that is what, or becoming a Christian, salvation, this is what it's about. That there is a debt that we owe God because of the sins that we have committed. But because of his love and because of his mercy, he chose to forgive us that debt by placing the penalty for that debt upon his own son. And when Jesus was hanging upon the cross, he was hanging on the cross on your behalf and on my behalf for your sins and for my sins and for your debt and for my debt. That is what was happening on the cross. But that is not the whole story. The other side of the story is that God also wants a relationship with you. God wants to have, you know, a true and a real relationship with you. That is why he extends his hand to adopt you into his family, to make you his own. And that is what salvation is. Those are the two aspects of salvation. And I always say this, that, that, that becoming a Christian is not so much, you know, what words do I need to use? It is a heart of commitment. It is a heart that is being sincere and, and earnest before God. And so it's not magical words that you need to use. There's no specific order of words that you need to use in prayer. You just need to be honest to God. You need to come to God and ask for forgiveness. You need to come to God and, and repent of your sins, which just means you being recognizing that the way that you have been living is not the way that God wanted you to live. And being broken by that, 
and asking for God's forgiveness and asking for God to make you his child and to make you his own. That is, in a nutshell, how you become a Christian. And my hope is that you take that step today, that you don't postpone it, that you don't wait, because you do not know what tomorrow holds, that you make that decision today, that you take that step. And perhaps for the other person who is a believer today, you are a Christian, you have taken this step before. This is what I want you to understand, is that um, according to Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, and this is where Jesus is about to send the 12 to go and preach ahead of him. And this is what he says in verse 8. He says, Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, therefore freely give. What I want you to understand, if you want to apply this teaching in your life, as a child of God, you've already accepted the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. What I want you to understand is I want you to do to others as God has already done to you. What God has done for you, what God, how God has reacted to you, I want you to go out. As you enter into this festive season, I want you to go out and to, to treat other people that same way. If you have being a recipient of God's mercy, then be merciful to others. If you have received the forgiveness of sins, for, for, for your sins from God, therefore go out there and freely forgive others who sin against you. When you and I realize, this is an important part, that when you and I realize just how much we have been forgiven, by God. We will no longer ask the question that Peter asked in the beginning of this, of this parable. We will no longer ask how many times I need to forgive those who sin against me. The question will change fundamentally. It will now become how can I afford not to forgive this person something that they did that is so little when it's compared to how much God forgave me. That is the question we need to ask ourselves, is how can I afford not to forgive? How can I afford not to, to give as I have freely been given? And so as we enter this festive season, and as we prepare to enter 2021, I'm hoping that we make a decision to go out there, you know, to go back, to sit down, to recollect every person who has hurt us this year, every person who has, who has sinned against us this year, and to make a conscious decision to go back and to forgive each and every one of those people, to make sure that we are not harboring any unforgiveness in our hearts as we enter the festive season in 2021. That is what I hope that we will be able to do, that if when we look at ourselves, when we sit down and we realize that we have been recipients of God's grace, that, that we go out and we actually choose to become gracious to others and to ask ourselves, if God is gracious to us when we slip up and sin, how can I not now be gracious to the next person when they slip up and they sin? Why? Because freely I have received and therefore freely I need to give to others as well. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this great work of salvation, for this masterpiece of salvation. Thank you, Father God, for each and every person who is making a decision today to place their faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time. 
pray for them lord god that you may keep them father god by your love that you may keep them that you may protect them that you may grow them and mature them into the person that you want them to be i commit each and every individual of them into your capable and into your loving hands in jesus name and i pray for each and every one of us lord god that have made this decision maybe years ago lord jesus help us to now be people that do to others as you have already done to us that treat others the same way that we have been treated by you in Jesus' mighty name. We thank you, Lord God, for what you have done in our lives. And we, we long, Father God, for what you are still going to do in us. I thank you. Give you all the honor in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. Amen. Take care. God bless you. We have come to the end of our service. We do hope that the word of God today has impacted and transformed your life. Remember, if you'd like to join us for our in-person service, make sure to book your seat on the Church Center app or the website. And also remember, very important, to sign your COVID declaration form before coming to the service. Enjoy your Sunday and see you next week.